What is man? What am I? What are you? What are we here for? Have we any purpose in life? These are all questions that we may not ask ourselves very often, but are essential for us to find answers to. Because how we view ourselves as people is going to determine, to a very large extent, how we live. Let me give you an example. Hitler, in his Germany, said that people who are insane or old or crippled or Jewish weren't really fully human. And therefore, they should be exterminated for the good of society. We have to, ourselves, determine the answers to the question, what is man, if we're going to avoid such an extreme. Look in your bulletin. You'll find an outline of the sermon this morning. And at the top, a quotation I'd like for us to consider. This is one answer that modern man is suggesting for what is man. The words are taken from Fred Hoyle, who's a professor of astronomy at Cambridge University in his book, The Nature of the Universe. And he writes these words. Only the biological processes of mutation and natural selection are needed to produce living creatures as we know them. Such creatures are no more than ingenious machines that have evolved as strange byproducts in an odd corner of the universe. Most people object to this argument for the not very good reason that they do not like to think of themselves as machines. Professor Hoyle accurately summarizes the implications for us if we simply are products of chance. If there is no God, then we're simply here on this earth, no different from the animals. And if that's the case, then we have no real purpose or meaning in life. There are no absolute values. Man is simply a product of chance, a strange byproduct in an odd corner of the universe, then all of the current human rights movement is completely foolish. If it's equivalent to a dog's rights movement. Now, I don't think very many of you have your dog knocking on your back door and picketing and saying, I demand my rights. I have a right to have a wife and children just like you do, not to have to live alone begging food from you at every meal. Or we don't expect the deer population in the mountain to demand deer rights. Say, we have a right to be well-fed every winter. Because you know how it is with deers. If the food is scarce, then the weaker ones just die off every winter. The ones that you don't find, at least, that you like to hunting season. But the deers don't demand their rights. And if they do, everybody laughs. The dogs don't demand their rights. And if we're simply products of chance, we're no more than animals and any human rights we demand are equally as foolish. So it's important for us to determine what are we then? We fall back on this teaching of the scriptures and found in Genesis 1 that we were created in the image of God and therefore we are different. We're not just animals. We're certainly not products of chance. But we're products of the willful creation and choice of a personal God who has made us. But what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Theologians have wrestled with this question throughout the centuries. They've generally landed upon such notions that, that our being in the image of God means that we have a rational nature or that we can reflect upon our own existence in a way animals can't. And though these things may be true, 
The Bible really finds our image of God located in a different area, namely in our having dominion over the world. And that's what we find in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. God created us in his image. He says, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the world. That's the fulfilling of our being in the image of God, our sharing God's rule. In the ancient world, the gods were not supreme or sovereign in, over, uh, over the creation. And if you've done any study in, in your school days of Greek or Latin mythology, then you know what I mean. Because behind the gods was always fate. Fate was greater than the gods. The gods could do some things, but they could never get beyond fate. So the gods had some power, but they were not really sovereign or supreme. In the ancient Near East, it was the same sort of way. The gods had all arisen from some sort of primordial ooze. And this primordial substance was superior to the gods. But the Bible tells us that that's not what, uh, what fits reality. Because the true God is sovereign over all creation. He's sovereign over the whole universe and all that exists. And we, as people who are created in his image, are meant to share that dominion. We are God's assistant rulers. We're not... Having dominion doesn't mean that we're bosses or that we manipulate people or we just kind of do our own thing. But it means that we're assistants under God's power helping to rule the world that he's created. Turn with me to Psalm number 8 and we'll see a further explanation of this theme. The theme which we touched upon last week in Genesis 1. And you'll find an outline for the psalm in your bulletin. Psalm 8 begins and ends with the same words in verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Verse 9, the same words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. A praise to God. And sandwiched in between the praise uh, is the reason for the praise. And the reason is found in two different statements in the two stanzas of the psalm. Verses 1 and 2 make up the first stanza, and verses 3 to 8, the second stanza. If you notice in your bulletin, uh, as I summarize them for you, both stanzas have the same basic theme, the same basic outline. Verse 1 and verse 3 both speak of God's majesty as displayed in the heavens. And then verse 2 in the first stanza, and verses 4 to 8 in the second, the dignified role that God has given man. Let's look at this first stanza. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine enemies to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So David begins by pondering the majesty of God as displayed in the heavens and then what God has made man. He said God has established strength or as the word can also be translated, a stronghold. And what is his stronghold? Infants and nursing babies. Now, who in his right mind would use infants and nursing babies as a stronghold for anything? Maybe if you want to have a stronghold for chaos and racket, you leave them in a room together alone, but that's about it. Well, you and I wouldn't use nursing infants as a stronghold, but God does. Because God glories in taking that which is weak and powerless and using that as his strength 
in this universe. This is a poem, and uh, the figure of the nursing babes and infants is used because they are the weakest form of humanity. And what God is saying in this poem is that he likes to take weak humanity and uses his strength in the universe. Now, if one of us were to win a franchise for a professional football team in Boise, which probably isn't too likely, but if we were, we would look all around the country and try to find the best athletes, men who were the biggest and the strongest and the smartest and the most agile, and we would use them to make our team. But God doesn't work that way. God takes those who are the weakest and he puts them on his team because God wants to show the whole universe that he as the coach is able to take a small, weak team and make it win. It's kind of similar to the uh, acclaim that the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles is getting this year because as everybody evaluates, the members of his team aren't all that good individually, but together he's... uh, Through his leadership, they've had a winning season this year and almost gotten the playoffs. It's the same sort of way with God. He takes that which is weak. And through weak people like you and me, he's able to have a stronghold in his universe for all to see the kind of God that he is, the kind of coach that he's able to be. But what kind of a stronghold are we? And why does God need a stronghold anyway? Well, we're told in the next next words of verse 2. Because of thine adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The Bible says that God has foes in this universe, satanic forces that oppose him and want to show him up, want to ridicule him. But God uses weak humanity to make them cease, or as the word is probably better translated here, to make them silent, to put them to silence. Because God wants to shut them up through us. What the Bible reveals is that we are all part of a big cosmic drama. We see it most clearly in the book of Job. In the book of Job, we see Satan coming to God and saying, God, the only reason people like Job praise you is because they have it so easy in life. He has health and wealth and a good family. Take these away from him and he won't praise you. He's dependent upon his circumstances. And so God allows Satan to take him away for the test because he wanted to demonstrate that he's able to use weak humanity as a stronghold to silence the enemy because God has made us to have dominion over our lives, to have dominion over our circumstances and rule them rather than be ruled by them. And as we turn to God and give him the fruit of our lips, the praise of our mouths, then We are a stronghold for God. And we put to silence all of God's enemies who are trying to to badmouth him. And that's what we see here in this psalm. He says, from the mouth of infants and babes. As we use our mouths to praise God in the midst of adverse circumstances, then we show all the the God-opposing forces that God is real and he is powerful. And he's able to make us to have dominion over our circumstances rather than be ruled by them. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Hold your place there. And we'll see these verses in this interpretation confirmed in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. This passage deals with the triumphal entry of Christ. 
uh, on Palm Sunday. And he quotes from this psalm, from verse 2. Let's read verses 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and scribes saw that the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Now notice that the words here are a little bit different from our Psalm 8. The reason is that Jesus is quoting from the Greek translation that was the current current Bible used in his time. And this translation paraphrases verse 2 of Psalm 8. Rather than God has established strength, it says God has established, prepared praise for, for himself. And Jesus using it here says this is a proper interpretation because it's our praise to God that constitutes our being a strength or stronghold for him. So remember, next time you're in adverse circumstances, things don't go your way, that you are part of a, of a great cosmic drama. And you have demonic forces which are trying to lure you into an attitude of self-pity or resentment or irritability or angrily shaking your fist at God over the way things are in your life. When you feel that you are being tempted to demand your rights and think that, that God is not treating you fairly by letting all these things happen, remember that you're in a spiritual battle and it's you who decides who gets the victory. As you give in to these temptations... Then Satan points his finger to God and says, Aha, I told you so. They won't praise you in the midst of difficulties. But if instead you submit yourself to God and turn and give to him the praise of your lips, praise him for his availability to you in the midst of, of problems. Praise him for the strength that he gives you. Praise him that your life with him is going to uh, last forever way beyond the time of these difficulties. As you do that, then you put to silence all of God's enemies. And he turns to them and says, I told you so. I can take weak humanity and make them my stronghold. Remember one example in, in my life that's most vivid when this happened to me. I was a college student uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And for us to go skiing, we had to travel five or six hours up to Lake Tahoe. And one weekend, a group of us went and rented a cabin. And it was the most, uh, well, we skied Saturday, and it was a, it was a crummy day. Uh, it was snowing, and it was a blizzard, and, and the bitter cold from the strong wind, and we didn't get much skiing in. But the next day was the most beautiful day I've ever seen. The sky was the most brilliant blue I'd ever seen it. It was about 40 degrees no wind, just perfect skiing conditions. New snow on the slopes. So we all got up early and we drove to, to Squaw Valley. And we got there and we found that the traffic line to get into the parking lot would take about an hour or so just to get in the parking lot. And you can imagine the lines and the slopes. And we, disappointment hit us. But we decided, well, we try to go to Heavenly Valley at the other end of the lake. So we drove down there. And we got there and it was worse. About to give up and go home, one person in the group remembered some small little ski resort in the area that we could try. And so we drove there. And lo and behold, the parking lot was almost empty. So we went in and we, 
and we got all our gear on and, and went in to buy our lift tickets. We found out that this little ski place had one chair lift and one rope tow. And the rope tow was up a hill with an incline of about two degrees, and it was about 100 yards long. We thought, well, this chair lift would be just ideal. But we found out that just that week, a tree had fallen down and knocked it out. So about to give up, we get in the car. It was my car, which was a brand new car, nice and shiny and sporty. Started driving out of the parking lot, and some high school kid was driving in the other way and thought he'd be a hot shot and show us what neat noises he could make in his car and going <laughs> and stuff. So he gunned his engine, and the cars went sideways, right into the side of my nice new car. All the circumstances that would normally make a person very angry and irritated and depressed and yet I found that because of the things I've been studying in the scriptures that week about the power that, that Christ gives us to transcend our circumstances, I realized I was rejoicing and praising God, and I couldn't believe it. All my friends who weren't Christians were griping, complaining, and, and irritated and thinking it's perfect day for skiing and were missing it. And it was a great illustration to me and sticks in my mind very clearly. We don't have to be ruled by our circumstances. We don't have to be wiped out when you when we envision something like going skiing someday or someday when you set a schedule and all the things you're going to get accomplished that day. And somebody throws a monkey wrench in like God and <laughs> and you don't get to do any of them. You don't have to be governed by those circumstances. You don't have to be governed your attitudes and responses by those failures. Because you can turn to God and offer him the, the fruit of your lips in praise and have dominion over your life and over the circumstances. And you can't control the circumstances, but you can, by God's power, control your response to them. And as we do, then we're God's stronghold in the midst of this universe. Let's look at, at the second stanza, and we'll see a continuation of this theme of our dominion. David says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea whatever passes through the paths of the seas. We can imagine that David may have been a shepherd when he wrote this psalm. And one night out in the fields, his sheep were all calm, no wolves prowling about. And David lies back in the grass. And he looks up in the sky, and there are no city lights to, to impede his vision. And he sees the glory and the brilliance of all of these stars in the sky and the moon. And he doesn't know what we know about astronomy, but he knows at least you can't throw a rock up and hit him. So he must be very far away. And he realizes God made all this. And if God made all this vast expanse, what is man? What am I? Just a speck in this universe that God cares for me. And we in our day, with our advanced knowledge, can feel this even more intensely. With the naked eye, you can see about 5,000 stars in the sky. But David didn't know, as we do, that the sun, which is the closest star, it looks like it's, you know, about that big. It's me anyway, but it's 
92 million miles away. It's 332,000 times the size of the earth. David didn't realize that that sun was only one of 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Our galaxy, which has a length of 100,000 light years, and which is only one of millions of galaxies in the universe. And if David had known that, he might well have shouted his question, God, what am I? What are we that you care for us? Or consider us as anything in this universe? You see, there are two different ways we can look at the fact that God loves us and has us as part of his plan in this universe. One is, God loves us, therefore we must be very wonderful and very lovable. The other response is, it's a wonder that God loves us. Today, most commonly, I hear the first response, but David's response and the response of the Bible generally, I think, is the second. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he's a lover. It's a gracious fact that God has chosen to use us very weak and small creatures on this small planet tucked off in a corner of the universe as part of his eternal cosmic plan. And that's what David ponders. When I consider the heavens, then I ask myself, what is man that you have given him this position of dignity and made him just a little lower than God himself and have crowned him with glory and honor? What does it mean that we are made a little lower than God and crowned with glory and honor? Well, the next verses describe it. Thou didst make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. We're a little lower than God in that we alone share God's rulership over the creation. We're sharers of dominion with him over the world that he has created. Then David takes an example, the animal world. He says, over the animals of the land, the animals of the air, and the fish of the sea, over all these, God has given us dominion. We conclude that we are to be people who control our environment. We don't control and manipulate other people, but we control the world, and therefore work is good. The Christian attitude towards work is, is, nev is never work as little as you can get away with. Because work is good. It's a means of our extending control over our environment. Science and technology are good. Though we misuse them, oftentimes they're good because they help us to exercise dominion over our environment. Because we are to be people who have dominion and exercise that. But I think even more than that is being hinted at here when David chooses animals in particular to say that we have dominion over. And I say this for a couple of reasons. One is the way that scriptures often use animals. If you'll notice the quotation I gave you in the, in the bulletin, and Edmund Jacob in his Theology of the Old Testament says this, From the serpent of Genesis to the beasts of Daniel, the forces of evil are symbolized by animal powers. And this is why we think that the image of God and dominion over the animals also implies to some extent dominion over evil. When God created man in Genesis 1, and, and the story is told again in Genesis 2, first thing he said is, you shall have dominion over, uh, subdue the earth and have dominion over the animals. And then in Genesis 2, we see Adam naming the animals and extending his control 
at least in terms of categorizing them and having verbal control over them that way. But then what's the first test? The first test was in one of the animals, the serpent, in Genesis 3 comes and pokes his head up and tells Eve, no, you're not going to die if you eat the fruit of that tree. At that point, Eve, in the image of God, as a person having dominion, should have exercised rulership over that animal and brought it under God's control and had dominion over the evil that was working behind that serpent and said, no, what God says is true and we're not going to rebel against him. But instead there, the serpent had dominion over her and influenced her to, to rebel against God and then she led her husband into the same act. So we can see from the, the way that Scripture uses animals that, uh, that they're often symbolic for evil second reason for thinking that this stanza is implying more than simply dominion over the animals is the parallel with the first stanza. There we are God's stronghold to silence the enemy, the evil one. So I think more than simply dominion over animals is implied here. Because we, as Christians, are to have dominion over the evil within our own lives. We can't control the society. We can't just pass a law and say, well, all evil is now outlawed, therefore nobody sin." But we can control our own lives, not by our, pow our power, but by God's. And he has called us to exercise control over that. Whenever we give in to sin, then we're foregoing the dominion that God intended us to have. When we're tempted, we should at that point deal with the sin and put it to death, not allow the temptation to, to grow in our mind, whether it's a temptation to be resentful of somebody or have an unforgiving spirit, whether it's a temptation to lust for power or recognition or pleasures or money or possessions, whatever it is. When the temptation comes, we're to recognize it and master it by God's power, put it to death, and be one who has dominion as God has dominion over his creation. But we know, however, that by the fall, we as man lost dominion to a large extent. We still have some control of dominion over the physical world, and even a, a non-Christian can be a very good scientist and help us extend our dominion there. But by our natural powers, we cannot exercise our dominion over the inner world, the evil that's in us. But there's one who enables us to do so. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible teaches that there are the first Adam led mankind into sin and rebellion and to a fallen race. But the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, is the beginner of a new humanity. And through his power, we are recreated, we're born again, become new creations and have new powers and regain the control over evil that we lost. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Where the, as the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which he was, we are speaking. The author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus Christ is greater than angels because he became a man and men are greater than angels because it's only to men that God has, has uh, given the subjection to the world. And then he... Uh, quote from scripture much the same way we often do someone has testified somewhere 
saying, uh, What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to man. But we do see another man, him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now we don't see man having the dominion he's supposed to have, but we do see the one who's the restorer of that dominion, Jesus Christ, who tasted death for us in our place that we may uh, be brought back into a position of having dominion. And it's by his power that we are to reign in life. By his power, we are given the, the control and the authority to subdue sin in our own lives. And we often say, you know, to sin is, is just human. We have the old cliche, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And sometimes we use that as an excuse. Well, you can't expect much. We're just sinful human beings. But God wants us to rule in our own lives. He's given us the power to do so through Jesus Christ, to have dominion over that sin, to not let it conquer us, to not let it sneak in and lure us away. Because the temptation soon, if we don't deal with it, it soon becomes the sin itself. First an attitude, then an action, and then a habit, which enslaves us and drags us down and away from God. But David is saying in Psalm 8 that God has created us in spite of the fact that we are small, uh, insignificant beings. God, by his grace, has created us in such a way that we are to be his assistant rulers in the universe, to share his dominion. We're to be people who don't let circumstances rule over us, but rather we rule over them. And we turn circumstances into opportunities of a victory for God as we give him the praise of our lips. We're to be people who exercise dominion over the evil that's in our own hearts. As we see the temptations rising, whatever they be, we put them down by God's power, by the power of Jesus Christ within us. And we have dominion over them. We don't let them rule over us. And as we do, then we fulfill part of our humanity. We come to fulfillment of what it means to be man, what God intended us for. And as we do, we bring great praise and glory and honor to God and silence his enemies in this universe. Let's pray. Father, we confess that very often we let ourselves be pushed around. We let circumstances rule our lives. Or we let keeping up with the Joneses dictate to us our, uh, how we spend our money. We let the sin go unjudged in our lives and therefore grow and enslave us. But Father, teach us all to be people who have dominion, who rule in our own hearts, rule in life. Thank you that you have given us this power. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves as you see us, 
as people who do have this power and help us to keep from being pushed around this day and this week as we live as kings in life, reigning through Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.